This podcast is sponsored by Collins. High quality primary and secondary resources for both students and teachers. Collins will help you deliver a knowledge rich and ambitious geography curriculum. Take a look at their range of atlases, revision guides and workbooks too. JogPod listeners get 25% off Collins Geography resources until the end of June 21. Simply head to collins.co.uk forward slash jogpod and enter the code jogpod at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to JobPod. Today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Stephen Scoffham. He's Visiting Reader in Sustainability and Education at the Sustainability Office at Canterbury Christchurch University in Kent. Stephen, you've been based in the education faculty for many years. You've worked with trainee teachers and practitioners from undergraduate to doctoral level and specialising in primary geography and environment and global perspectives. I think any primary geography teacher listening to this is in for a treat. You're a a long-term member of the UK Geographical Association. You were president in 2018-19, and you've had many other roles as well. You were an honorary publications officer. You've served twice as an elected member of the Governing Council. You've written articles, not just for the GA, and books in numbers too great to name. I should mention you edited and masterminded several of the editions of the Primary Geography, which for many years was was the the prime uh, resource, I think, for primary school teachers and a a best-selling title, really, for us. You're a long-term author consultant for that excellent Collins School Atlas series, which I think we'll talk a fair bit about later on. And your research interests focus on teaching and learning, but also include the environment, and sustainability, intercultural understanding, but underpinning it all is primary school geography and creativity, excitement for young people in their environment around them. And one of your many collaborations, the one I think is really good, which I've only just started looking at, is the Meaningful Maps Research Project, exploring children's sense of place, but through their free form mapping. And and some of the examples are absolutely wonderful. I urge anyone to go and have a look at, at the website. So, and it's ongoing. So thanks for agreeing to join me on JogPod. <laughs> that was a long introduction, but I think it needed to be. <laughs> well, thank you very much, John. And um, I, I, I've got to live up to an awful lot now. <laughs> You've built me up, <laughs> no pressure. The broad portfolio of the things I've done over the years has only been possible because I'm part of a community and the primary geography community is and has been a wonderful community and being able to share things with other people, to bat ideas off people, to put out a plea and say I've got to do the other, I don't know what I've got to teach tomorrow morning, help, can you come up with some ideas? That idea of belonging to a supportive community where people generously share ideas, I think that's wonderful. And it's been enormously valuable for me. And I would sort of preface everything we're going to say this morning by saying, you know, do participate and join uh, uh, in whatever way makes sense for you in this community, which supports each other and networks in a really positive and supportive way. I often go back and have a look at some of the journals which are part of that community when I'm, I'm thinking about what we might talk about. And... One of them that I picked up, I may have mentioned this earlier in an earlier podcast, I'm not sure, but I went back to some writing of John Unstead in the Geographical Journal in 1949. Now, he was looking further back 
But he said that in the 1880s, practically no place was giving instruction to geography as an independent subject because it was regarded as not possessing content or method worthy of serious study. And this is a quote from Professor G.H. Darwin at Cambridge. I cannot see how geography, pure and simple, can be made a subject of intellectual training. <laughs> Your career is centered on writing about and showing others how geography can be the subject of intellectual training. That's been your life. How did it start? How did you get into that rather than becoming a doctor or, or a lawyer? Or what prompted you along this career path? Okay, um, this is this could be a big conversation, John. But um, uh, <laughs> I, I remember reading at one point a, a, a newspaper comment saying uh, some rubbishing geography and saying geography is a magpie subject. It brings together all sorts of rag, rag ends and bits and pieces. It's got no no sort of coherence. And actually, that's its but its strength because it draws on all sorts of different ideas, integrates. And I suppose the short answer to your question is I'm interested in the broad view and integrating lots of different things. Uh, the trade-offs here, aren't there? You can dig, dig deep and go sort of uh, 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 very focused, or you can go broad, and then you, the danger is that you get a bit too shallow. And I'm always feeling that I'm dabbling in uh, aspects of sociology, psychology, neuroscience, economics, all sorts of different disciplines, which is impossible to be uh, uh, really in depth uh, informed about, but which you need to draw on. And as an educationist and a teacher, that's what teachers are doing all the time. They're bringing things together and they, children, you're working with young children. They see the world in an integrated way. They don't see it in boxes and in silos. And as we're moving into the 21st century, the well, we second decade now, the, uh, what really is going to be important is the ability to bring knowledge together. Siloed thinking is not the type of thinking that is going to serve us well in the future. We need to integrate our understanding about living on this planet. So all sorts of thoughts there, but as far as our 19th century geographers are concerned, or the, those who want to rubbish it, I just say, we'll go back to the ancient Greeks. They seem to think that geography was a perfectly good subject. I'm not going to sort of try and pull that type of card, but it's interesting to note uh, that geography has a long and very distinguished pedigree as a, a way of thinking about the world, which has integrity. So <laughs> I don't know that, where that takes us, but that's a start. Did you come to geography? Was there a light bulb moment where you thought, haha, this is the subject for me? I, I'm just thinking, I have several when I look back. I, I, I remember standing in a glaciated valley. My, my dad was Scottish. We went up to Scotland for our holidays all the time and, and looking at a meandering river and thinking, I've just, I've just done in geography that in the mountains, we should have fast flowing rivers and further down, we'll find meanders. And here I am standing in the mountains and here's some, here's some meanders and I don't know what's going on. And my geography teacher was brilliant explaining it. And I was thinking, do you know, I'm beginning to understand things outside of the classroom. That was one of my little moments of, of geography being one of the things I thought, this is a subject to follow. Okay, yeah, fascinating question, because I'm the book which I'm just writing at the moment, I've, I've the preface which I've scrapped, uh, began with light bulb moments and saying some people have light bulb moments. And they sort of know, you know, sort of written in the stars that they're always going to be fascinated by geography. Other people just sort of slide into it. <laughs> I'm putting myself into the, the people who slide into it. I, I said in my presidential lecture a couple of years ago, 
that I was an accidental geographer. And some, some people in the audience took that uh, in the wrong way and thought, well, here's somebody who's a complete, not, you know, such a complete fraudster. And we all feel we're complete fraudsters now and then, but uh, no, uh, that idea of, uh, that it's something that slowly developed and grew on me. I've discovered I was a geographer, perhaps partly, uh, I, I, my university degree is in philosophy. Uh, philosophy and history. I went on a, in fact, I chose an integrated course, which had a, uh, it was an integrated humanities uh, uh, for term entry to this course. So uh, it, it was a very innovative view, uh, view of the world, even at that time. And uh, that idea that we can bring things together and make sense of them is, is something which uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always struggling to do and always wanting to do. Uh, I discovered I was a geographer really through teaching in a funny sort of way uh, when I started using the outdoor environment as a teaching resource in a, in, a, in a big way and wrote a book about it. And people around about me said, well, that's geography. And I said, well, if that's geography, then maybe I'm a geographer. <laughs> and then when I found myself working in a teacher education faculty and were actually based with the geography department, uh, we had... I was there for 15 years or so, we had some wonderful conversations and I used to join in some team teaching and lectures and so on. And after about two or three years, they, they said to me, Stephen, you're a geographer, you're, you're one of us. <laughs> and so it's something which has grown on me and which I has developed. And really I'm still like all of us, uh, uh, opening new doors and discovering new things about this extraordinary subject. You've co-authored a wonderful book, I think, Teaching Primary Geography with Paula Owens. Um, that just follows from what you were saying about discovering geography through teaching. You've partly answered my first part of this question, but I'm going to ask you two things. Why does geography matter to young people? And I think you've partly answered that. But the second part of this is, then, if it does matter, what does good practice in geography in primary schools look like? Well, of course, <laughs> of course, we're going to agree that it matters. And uh, there, again, there are lots of different ways into this, but one which is really important. I've been very interested in sustainability and the environment throughout my life. I mean, if there's a, a again, not a light bulb moment, but that uh, has developed alongside uh, geography and geography is probably one of the better homes for uh, if you're looking for disciplines, it's probably one of the better homes for somebody who's interested in what was, first of all, in yes, environmental studies, nature studies, moved into world studies, uh, development issues, uh, global perspectives, global understanding, all those sort of words. Geography is a natural home for all those types of perspectives. And uh, quite, you know, sort of it seems to be sort of a no-brainer that at the present time, understanding that we live on a finite planet uh, is absolutely central to uh, where we're going as a, uh, as, uh, as a culture, as a civilization. And indeed, we've got to find ways of living within the, the means of the planet that we've got. Geography provides that worldview. There is no other subject that talks about the world in the way that geography does. It introduces children to the world map. It takes uh, children, talks to them about the world out there. And equally, it encourages children to work, find out about the world, not only out there at a distance, but out there right, literally on the doorstep. And that mixture of the local and the global is one of the things which geography is particularly good at doing, I think. And so if we think about what good geography teaching might be well again uh, lots of different ways into this one but 
I, I think that there, there are two things which are, well, a number of things. One is that ge geography uses graphical means to represent knowledge and understanding in a way that is unique. And it's there in the word geography, geography is, if you trace it back to go back to the ancient Greeks again, it's earth writing, the graphia is writing or earth, earth, earth description. So that idea of using maps, diagrams and visual forms of communication is really central to geography. But equally, the other uh, adage is that whereas history, uh, uh, whereas, um, let's, let's go to this one, uh, geography is learned through the soles of your feet. It's learned through actually doing things. And uh, at our research conferences, we've recently, at Charney Manor, we've recently been talking about, well, what is it that makes geography distinctive? And we started talking about signature pedagogies. And the signature pedagogies are uh, learning practically through inquiry, asking questions, doing things, making maps, using those maps, spatial awareness, which of course will then take us into uh, the concepts which underpin geography. So good geography is framed, as it were, and understood not only through inquiry questions, but through the a few key principles. And again, there's a bit of discussion around what they should be, but place uh, and space uh, and scale are often uh, cited very strongly as key unifying ideas. Geography uniquely is about understanding places and what they're like, like. And that brings me on to the interaction point, that it's about the interaction between people and their surroundings and the environment and the way that environment impacts on people. So it's a two-way process. And if there's anything else, nothing else that we need to understand more at the present time, it is that dynamic and constantly changing interaction between people and place. So geography for me is right up there as the, the uh, lens through which we can understand the world. You know, I think that's really difficult for a non-geographer. I think for, when I first went to the Geographical Association, Francis Saw, the office manager at the time said to me, can you tell me what geography is? She said, if I ask a historian, they'll give me three sentences and I'll understand what history is. So can you tell me what geography is? And about five minutes into it, <laughs> she, she said to me, I still don't know. <laughs> so I think it's really difficult for, for non-specialists. In fact, actually, I think it's difficult for specialists because I spent the first, I think it's 15 years without a national curriculum. And people have said to me, Younger teachers have said to me, what on earth did you teach? How did you know what to do? And of course, I went to the Geographical Association and, and, and got ideas from there. But you could see good teaching as just interpreting the national curriculum. But you've talked many times about how a powerful and imaginative geography goes, curriculum goes much further than that. And, and you've put a, a really strong argument in the, that book in 2017, Teaching Geography Creatively. So what practically what sort of curriculum is a creative geography curriculum what does it look like and what kind of thinking underpins that sort of curriculum yeah interesting question about the curriculum and its its strengths and weaknesses really which i uh, i can unpick in different ways but um there's the knowledge side of geography and geography like any other subject needs to and is uh, and has at its core a whole lot of knowledge uh, and knowledge is a tricky one at the moment because actually we're swamped with uh, knowledge. Um, Howard Gardner, who 
some of you may be familiar with from multiple intelligence, so it said that in the 20th century, uh, teachers and, and academics had the sort of, it's almost like a guild, you know, we had access to knowledge and knowledge was ours and we could transmit it and sift it and we're in charge of it. When you come to the 21st century, we're swamped with information and knowledge. I mean, I could, by the time I've opened my computer in the morning and I've read all the local latest reports and, and tweets and things which have landed upon me, I, my head is buzzing. So the problem nowadays isn't shortage of knowledge, it's how to synthesize knowledge. Uh, but having said that, you know, just as being able to spell words is jolly useful if you're going to write something, and yes, you can look it up on a, on a spell checker, but actually being able to spell some basic words helps you a lot. So having a basic geographical knowledge of the world matters, and I think I would want to say that very clearly. But equally, that needs to be balanced by um, our understanding and our response and an emotional dimension. And that is sometimes underplayed and it's underplayed partly because it's very difficult to quantify and it's very difficult to put, it's not chunky, it's not something you can re edit, re really assess in, a, in the same way as you can measure by, you know, sort of, there's the sort of trivial pursuits geography, you know, if I ask you what the capital of France is, uh, you know, if you say Paris, you're right, and if you say something else, you're wrong, you know, that's straightforward. But if it's about how you uh, understand uh, a, a, a place in, and how you feel about different places and what they mean to you, then that becomes much more difficult to uh, uh, pin down. So we've got those different dimensions which are, are difficult to put into a curriculum. Now the thing about a curriculum is that it involves selection uh, and it, really you're, you're looking at the enormous confusion and uh, diversity and, and uh, abundance of the world around you and saying, okay, what is it around from this that we want children to learn about and uh, know about? What is it? What, what does geographical literacy, you know, what it look like at age seven? What does it look like at age 11? And how is it different? And clearly knowledge will come into that, but equally uh, uh, it's going to have lots of other different dimensions. And when it comes to looking at a, a formal curriculum, I have been very critical and I continue to be very critical that the word sustainability doesn't feature in the key stage one or key stage two national curriculum at all. And this is something which I've discussed with uh, Ofsted, it's something which I've written about and something which I sound off about at every occasion because I think that this is such a, a sh I, when it came out I was ashamed that Britain, uh, which is a country that many uh, uh, jurisdictions around the world will be looking at the British curriculum and English curriculum and Welsh curriculum and Scottish curriculum and, so, and saying, uh, you know, what is it that it, they're doing there? And it, it, it's a role model, it is an example. And at a time of when we are questioning whether in the next, in the lifetime of the children that we're teaching, whether they will be able to live meaningful lives, whether they'll be able to live uh, 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 decent lives at all, given the way things are going. Not to mention sustainability, not to see that we're using the Trump, one of the Trump cards that we have for uh, dealing with the crisis that we're in at the moment. That seems to me, uh, something which I just cannot understand how it, why it's not there. So um, <laughs> moving from, you know, sort of very specific things about knowledge, a uh, bit of a sounding off about uh, the importance of sustainability and the fact that it should be in the curriculum. When people do sustainability, sometimes they forget the geography. Um, so you've got to go back to what you were talking about in terms of the key concepts that underpin geography that then make the work that you're doing in sustainability, geographical work yeah. rather than separate. I agree completely, yeah. 
Yeah. So things like world knowledge, you know, that's a pretty good one. I don't know if you want to go on to locational knowledge and its importance, but um, that would be something, you know, sort of that's what geography can contribute to this deeper and uh, understanding. Well, uh, yes, let's let's do that. But uh, just to, just to, before we go there, just leaving you with a thought from David Orr, who's a, 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 one of my gurus, and I really look up to him and think he's wonderful. He says the fundamental questions for education is what sort of world do we want to live in? What sort of person do I want to be? And what sort of society do I want to live in? Those two questions, what type of person do I want to be? What type of society do I want to live in? Can un give us a lodestone for a curriculum in geography, a curriculum in any subject area. And Gert Biester, the uh, philosopher of education, who is many of us are really impressed with and thinks has come up with some extraordinarily good ideas recently, says more or less the same thing. It's about what the questions for education, fundamental questions for education is uh, how I understand myself, how I relate to other people and how I relate to the world around me. And that applies to geography just as much as, or perhaps even more than other subjects. It's, I quoted that exact quote at the, in the forward to the um, uh, leading primary geography handbook, which has just come out from the GA. Yeah, that was very powerful for me. I did a project with Sue Birmingham uh, on place, and it was we were working with disaffected young people, and it was about place and self-esteem and developing their, their language skills about writing about place. And not only did they get a better perception of how they saw place, one of the lads said to me at the end, he says, John, what I've learned is you don't know a place until you've listened to other people talking about it. Mm. And I thought how powerful that was, that he understood that different people might see the same place in quite, quite different ways. He also saw the same place and understood because he said to me, oh, you, he says, you, don't, you wouldn't want to be here in the evening on your own. He says, it's dangerous. Then he said, ah, but you're all right because you're with me. He understood that uh, places change during the day over time in terms of their danger, their welcomingness. Their... So he understood place as a, as a concept for him, but that other people saw it differently from him, which I thought was a, f a fascinating uh, yeah, Dorian, outcome. Dorian Massey talks about how places is, rather than being a physical, well, it is as well as being physical, a physical location is a meeting point for people. And it is that intersection. And you can see that happening. You know, if you go back to a place that you treasured or you know, suppose you go back to your old school or the university where you went or college or whatever it is, uh, and you just want to revisit it and you think that's not the same place any longer that wasn't mm. what i remembered because it was made by the people it was the people who were there at the time that made it what it was and that idea of place as an intersection of different uh, human journeys uh, means that it's constantly evolving constantly changing and cannot be defined in uh, and equally <laughs> makes assessment of any learning about place that much more complicated. Don't want to make this geography sound too difficult, but I think that idea of place as a meeting point is a, is a nice one. Well, it, it fits with what you were saying about shall we go into locational knowledge? Because we can look at locational knowledge just as being, I can locate this place. And the national curriculum asks you to do that. So in, 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 to a certain extent, I can name these and name and locate these rivers. But what it doesn't do, unless you think geographically about it, as you've just said, what impact does it have on people? 
it, it, is there a crossing point here? Why, why did they come to this point? What was it about this place? And how has this place changed over time? So there are two things about, look. well, there are more than two, as you will tell me. There, there's more than just the location when we're looking at locational knowledge. There's an interesting um, piece in the 2011, the last Ofsted report, 2011, on, on geography teaching, talking about children in uh, lower key stage, uh, in, in, in lower secondary school, who were learning about Amazonia. Now, those children, in this particular example, didn't know and couldn't say that Amazonia was in South America. Now, that seemed to be a pretty good example of why locational knowledge matters, because you can't locate where Amazonia is on the world in the world map. You don't really understand that it's on the equator. You don't understand how it's going to be affected by, let's say, global weather systems and equally the impact that <clears throat> forest clearance might have on global weather systems. You, 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 you're really disadvantaged. So in that sense, understanding location is uh, absolutely crucial. But I, turning it round, I couldn't agree more that just being able to say that a particular city is the capital of a country doesn't take you very far. What you can then start doing is to ask some inquiry questions about it, and then you begin to get into the geography. Now, the interesting thing about the capitals is that actually some countries, just to be awkward, have more than one capital. And so immediately you think, oh, actually, well, what is a capital? Can we define it? What do we expect to find there? Sometimes the capital isn't the biggest city. Uh, and so you've got countries, let's say Turkey is an example, where Istanbul, probably the biggest city in Europe, is the biggest city in Turkey, but Ankara is the capital. Then you've got countries which move their capital. And you've got Brasilia, for example, as the capital of uh, Brazil, which is in a pretty central location, whereas previously the capital was in a rather rather on the edge, exactly the same in Kazakhstan, where Almaty was the capital, and now it's moved uh, right into the centre for strategic reasons. So what is the best place for the capital city? What would be the best place for a capital for Britain? London isn't a very good location, really. The central point would be somewhere around Birmingham or bit further to, to the east, as it were, but somewhere in North Midlands. And if it was there, perhaps we wouldn't be talking about the great, you know, this uh, Northern Wall and all the business about levelling up, because we would have the centre of gravity of the country would be in the centre. And so the, the levelling would have sort of rippled out like the, the rings on a, on a stone thrown into a pond. So, you know, that business, as I say, Capital city, yeah, you need to know it, but actually then asking questions around capital cities, all those questions which I've just given you take us into really interesting geography. And then we can look at the differences within the capital itself, I think, with um, if you take a Brazilian city with a favela sitting bang next to <laughs> yeah. a, a hotel with the, with luxury swimming pools, yeah. Yeah. is it the yeah. same place? And so we've got social social equality or the lack of it. We've got um, all the, oh, it's, it, there's so much that you can study here, which is fascinating. And connectivity would be another one. You know, one of the things about capital cities, we find with the Geographical Association meetings in the old days, in inverted commas, when we used to meet physically, there were all sorts of discussions as could we meet in more central locations and uh, do we really have to travel all the way to London? And the answer was always, 
kept on coming back to the fact, yes, we did, because London is the most accessible point and it's the easiest point to get to, even although it's not necessarily geographically uh, the, 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 the most proximal. So, um, yeah, we can make a whole unit of work on capital cities and, and, and what we know about them. I'd like to ask you just about your opinion on whether you see geography as being better taught as a single subject or, or uh, as, a, as an integrated holistic approach. Yeah. It says, I'm, I'm going to come down in the middle. I'm going to give the politicians answer. You can do both and both are valid. It's a question of what you teach rather than the structural processes around it. So um, just to say a little bit more around that. I mean, I made the point at the beginning about geography being drawing in and linking to other subjects, perhaps better than just about any other subject in the curriculum. It, it does have that wonderful bridging uh, 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 position. And the, uh, human geography is one big branch of geography. Physical geography is one big branch of geography. One sits in, in the sort of humanities and the other sits in the sciences. It, it straddles, you know, so it is integrative. Uh, so by, by nature, it, it has that possibility. Uh, I think keeping it pure and, and discreet has considerable advantages uh, because in integrated working, the geography gets lost so easily. And it gets lost partly because it's to do with fundamentally the understanding of the teacher. Now that takes me into something we might come to in a, in a minute. But the other thing I'm going to say is, um, I think this business about integrated learning, cross-curricular learning, transdisciplinary learning, whatever term you want to use, is one that it plays out particularly strongly in the junior school in the middle years of childhood. So for the infants, integrated learning seems to be the norm as it were and accepted for as you go up the scale towards GCSE, then single subject seems to be the norm and there's a battleground in the middle. So that's one of the things, it's such a vibrant discussion, but it can be a little bit debilitating as well for, for the junior years generally, for the ages seven to 11, are we going to integrate? And if so, how far do we integrate? You integrate two or three subjects, so you can go broad topics, then you get a reasonable coverage, all sorts of fascinating questions. And actually talking about it is probably the most interesting thing of the lot and the most valuable thing of the lot, because that's part of uh, professional development. It's, it's really hard, I think, though, for, for primary school teachers because you're expecting them to be a master of all. And I, that is really tricky because we've, we've talked in, in terms of what makes good quality geography. And I, I think that's a, that's a deep conversation to be had. And I think if you're going to integrate, you need to be secure in your subjects before you do it. So you need to, as it were, to have a good foothold in the subjects that you're integrating. Otherwise, as I say, they get lost. And I think the point I, I, I backed off making, but I'll make it now, is to do with uh, training is a word I don't really like, but you know, the problem that uh, one of the most important things in education and in teaching is the qualities and the understandings of the teacher. It goes without saying. And teachers, I, I, I've worked in teacher education for many, many years. And the amount of time that is devoted to geography, education and geography teaching is, is pitiful. Mm -hmm. and th that's a national picture it's not just a sort of my personal experience and if you uh, as a left geography behind uh, um, as many of us did at 13 or whatever 14 and never really got to grips with it and found it something that didn't agree with you 
how on earth can you going to bring it to life and and and, and make it a, a, a fun and enjoyable and meaningful for primary school children so that is an, an area which i think we really need to as, as a you know sort of as, a, as an education community we're always doing our best to support and to help uh, develop understanding uh, amongst our amongst the teaching profession as to what geography can offer i don't know if this is the right point to say do think that the geographical association might be a good place to find out more but there is free membership available and uh, for primary teachers and it's a great thing to do and that will begin to plug you into the type of thinking which will support you in this I mean it's frightening isn't it being asked to teach something which you don't really understand and don't like and don't get on with uh, we can help with that through the geographical association. Well it's interesting you said that because I've just been doing some some teaching in a primary school Yes, listeners, I did. And, and I still am. And I've been using maps because the teachers were unconfident. And local maps, using Digimap actually, and zooming in and zooming out with even some of the youngest in Y, well, in Y2 and Y3, they were absolutely fascinated by the maps and putting themselves in. I, I was quite surprised at how much they were able to understand about the changing scales. So it brings me, I think, to ask about the Collins Atlas series, because that's one tool for exploring a whole, exploring the world in a, in, in a variety of different scales, but in an exciting way. You know, again, you see, the interesting thing about an atlas is what is it? Um, and for many people, an atlas is what I'd think of as a reference source. And atlases, you know, you go to your atlas and you look it up where it is. You want to find out what it is. You know, I, I do that. You know, I hear about something that happen, happening around the world and I think, well, I don't really know where that is. So I go and look it up. And if you look in even a junior school atlas, there are probably 2000 or more entries in the index. So it's got to have that reference dimension to it. But when I've been thinking about atlases for many years, I thought, well, that's fine. But you know, that's a bit like knowing that Paris is the capital of France. Where's that taking us? Can mm. we make it a more creative document? And so when, and what I've tried to do in atlases is to say, yes, we'll have the reference source, but we'll also have uh, maps which uh, complement each other, which tell you a different story. So for example, you could have a map of Britain that shows where the main cities are, but you could put that alongside a map that shows uh, weather patterns or which shows uh, a satellite image of the country or land use of one kind or another. And then they begin, the maps begin to talk to each other. And so you can say, well, that's interesting. That place is, doesn't seem to have many towns in it. Why is it? If you've got this nearby the relief map that will show you that it's a mountainous area, you'll think, oh, that's obvious, isn't it? You know, nobody can live there. It's too, too mountainous. And it's that uh, the ability to actually ask questions about the map that you're looking at, which makes me excited about atlases. And so that's what I've tried to do. And in the Collins Atlases, I brought in a historical dimension and an environmental dimension, no surprise, alongside uh, the uh, basic geography, which, uh, which obviously needs to be there. And uh, that's uh, something which we can uh, get, you know, sort of opens up all sorts of doors. The working definition of an atlas it, for the publisher's point of view, I said, well, you know, what is, how do you see an atlas? And they said, well, if 50% or more of the page content is given over to maps, that is an atlas. Uh, if, you know, if less than that, then it becomes something else. 
<laughs> and sometimes people turn around to me and say, well, what you're doing isn't really an atlas and you're pushing the bounds, but perhaps pushing the bounds is what we ought to be doing. Well, it, it produces a rich source for inquiry, which is what you said was quality geography right at the beginning of the talk that we were, we were having Absolutely. earlier on. Yeah, yeah, and putting an inquiry question at the top is uh, something we often do. Here's another little moment that, that I remember. I, I might have talked about this on a podcast before, but I, I, I used to play a game called Waddington's Risk. It's a world domination game. You wander around. Depends on the <laughs> dice, doesn't it? If the dice, yes. uh, the dice are on your side, you'll win. <laughs> but I couldn't understand for the life of me. I must have been about eight. How you could go from Kamchatka in Siberia to Alaska in one move. Because it was right the way across the board. What was going on there then? And th what I hadn't computed was that they're about, I don't know, are they 20 miles apart? Because I'd visualized the cylinder, the Mercator projection, and to the far west of the map and the far east of the map, I had a clue that they were joined. So it's important, I think, that we look at, in an atlas, different map projections, I think, and also use other tools. Atlases and world maps are particularly seen as the gateway, as it were, to your understanding or the image. What, there's a lovely book I remember written by John Bale, which inspired me many years ago, and it was uh, Young Children and the Worlds Inside Their Heads, or something like that. That was the sort of title. And that idea of what world do we have inside our heads? What image of the world do we have inside our head? And where does it come from? That image comes largely from flat maps in atlases. And uh, it is inevitably a, a partial image. You've got to have a center, you've got to put something in the middle. And usually in the Northern Hemisphere, we put Europe in the middle and uh, with Britain very neatly placed in the most prominent and most important place on the page. And you absorb that subliminally. And so our images of the world that we carry around in our heads often have that, those sorts of biases in it. One of the great games that we play every so often is turning the map upside down, as it were, and putting Antarctica at the top, uh, which is perfectly legitimate. There's no right and wrong way up to the planet as it spins, it spins through the space, but it is a bit confusing. And just turning the map sideways so that you've got Britain turned sideways with East Anglia at the top and Kent at the top and Cornwall at the, and, and Wales at the bottom. Again, it makes you feel a bit dizzy, but until the magnetic compass was, uh, became uh, dominant in the 17th century, maps were orientated towards the east because that's the direction of sunlight, that's the direction of the Holy Land and so on. Uh, and, and, and it was a completely different conception of the world that you have simply by changing which way you put it on the page, let alone talking about the size of the uh, of the territories and the way that you colour them in. We've had we have wonderful discussions about this sort of stuff. You know, traditionally, um, Britain and the old countries of the Commonwealth were coloured red. And of course, they'd jump out on the map and uh, working with uh, this business about, well, it, you fall off the edge when you get to the Pacific, as it were, in the Bering Straits between uh, uh, Alaska and, and parts of Siberia. Uh, many maps in the 19th century managed to show uh, uh, bits of the world twice because <laughs> that showed the British Empire as even more dominant than it, perhaps it should be. But there's been a there is a huge discussion around your map projection because you can't have any, you can't put a 3D world onto a 2D piece of paper without making compromises. So some parts of the world are, are, are shown bigger and some parts of the world are shown smaller than they actually are. And that's, that's the name of the beast. 
One of the ones that I've been using, it'd be interesting to get your opinion on this. I, I showed some primary teachers the, the Mercator projection, and then we had a look at the orthograph projection, which is an equal area projection. Mm. But it, it leaves Britain in the far northwest, if you imagine. Yeah, of the, a, of, the, of the slices, yeah. And we played a little game about where where are the continents? Can you find this country? Can you find that country? And the, the group was quite divided over whether they'd use it with their children. Some said, oh, it's too confusing. Another said, I think this is brilliant because we can use this as a quiz. Can you recognize that same shape over there? And are, are there other projections that we can look at? And then we'll do the, the thing like taking the, the skin off a tangerine. How, what would your thoughts be on, on giving young children two or three different projections. Yeah, I take that point about the confusion. I think for my money, I think you need a dominant default mode as it were. And yes, we know that the lots of biases in the sort of Britain at the center at the top and so on, but that is a, a perfectly good default mode to have as it were. It's a useful one for us as lot, but recognizing that it's, it contains a bias is probably the important bit. Uh, introduce so you know within a let's say a, a swathe of 20 maps if 18 of them or 17 of them were all on the same framework all to the same projection then that establishes that very clearly and then two or three which are different for good reasons then that makes perfectly good sense so you, if you're looking at world population for example you might want to have one of those uh, uh, boxes a map which shows the continents and countries not by their sort of physical shape but in terms of the size of their population in, in terms of boxes which are bigger or smaller and it's a very interesting comparison to make so that's cartogram perfectly valid uh, but I think you don't want to confuse children too uh, at all you don't want to confuse them at all you want to get them <laughs> asking questions but you want to give them a framework from which to work and I think you need to establish that framework. We haven't really talked about using globes, but I suppose if they have an atlas and a globe, yeah, it's great for, for 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 interstellar stuff as well, isn't it? I mean, and you've got this sort of stuff about the uh, the tilt of the atlas, and you've got to explain the seasons, which is a really tricky area to try and get across. And a globe is is clearly uh, very very useful for that. But if it comes to you know coming back to the reference thing, if you want to find out uh, where most places are, you can't put much on a globe. You know, those 2,000 entries in a junior atlas, you haven't got space for 2,000 words on a globe. You haven't got space for 200, probably. No, that's right. It's only large-scale locations, and I suppose uh, at most countries. And 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 intergalactic, not intergalactic, but you know, solar system stuff. Hmm. Yeah, very good for that. You need both. Of course, you do. Of course, you do. Globes and atlases go together like uh, fish and chips, don't they? <laughs> well, yes, I do remember the old projector in school and the globe and trying to show them how a season worked by putting the blackouts on. And <laughs> yeah, well, there's some good things on the web now and uh, Oxfam's done some good stuff on this, but um, it's, 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 it's still a difficult one to get across. And developmental, you know, there's something developmental here. I, I, in terms of curriculum, uh, there's talk about the seasons, the seasons feature and only mentioned for key stage one. Uh, that's problematic because really you want to be able to talk about the seasons with your upper juniors because it's at that stage that they might make better sense of the tilt and what it mm. all means because you've got too many variables to consider handling more than one variable is 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 makes something much much more complicated 
uh, there's considerable difficulties, I think, with the national curriculum orders as they stand in terms of progression and, and, and the bumpiness around it. You've written a lot about geography and creativity. Um, and I love your phrase because you've, you've talked about how education is about lighting a fire. And that's, that's right, you light a fire, but fires can be dangerous. And <laughs> <laughs> geography can certainly be contentious. And depending on your take, quite dangerous, dangerous politically. I can see that we could be in a position where certain things that we want to say about sustainability for one, don't necessarily agree with um, the, the politics of the way we're moving. And, but geography can be dangerous. Okay, um, yeah. And I would say in a sentence, it, it needs to and should be handling uh, controversial issues without being ideological. I think that's the point. Uh, and if you're coming back to the David Orr point about what type of person do I want to be and what type of society do I want to live in, if you're going to ask question in any meaningful way, you're going to have to talk about things which involve politics, not party politics, but politics with a small p, because migration and refugees are absolutely hot potato. I mean, it's rocked uh, our political institutions around mm. the world, the, and, and it looks as if, uh, sadly, as if migration and refugees is going to become an even bigger issue in the next decade, for example. It would be, I think, it would be disingenuous for education to uh, not to uh, uh, engage with, with that in some way or another and help children to understand the issues in an impartial and uh, critical and creative way. And so though that migration and refugees is certainly something I'd want to see happening and talked about in different ways at different age range, this is part of developing as, as an inclusive society. So it has to be in the curriculum even although it's controversial. And that takes us into areas where when you start getting politicians involved, they, the temperature rises and uh, we have to be careful. So we have to be careful not to be ideological. We have to be careful not to make children anxious because they don't come to school to be made anxious. And it, learning doesn't happen well if you're anxious. We know that from the neuroscience. Uh, but equally, uh, it has to be uh, honest. And I think it would be dishonest to exclude uh, the big issues of the day. Uh, 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 if you're learning about the world, uh, you have to learn about the world as it is and what's happening in it, and that will equip you and make give you the children the skills and abilities which they need as they move forward in life. Uh, mm -hmm. What else is schooling for? I can see some difficulties coming out with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> because, well, you... you you'd also be challenging the media, not necessarily the politicians. So children come in and we, and the, the media have been othering migrants. Mm. They're, not, they're not really the same as us. Mm. Uh, uh, it's a nice way of making sure that we, um, we don't value them as human beings. That's what, they're, that, that's what a number of them will read and see. It's difficult not to be controversial because we'll be challenging that view as teachers, I think, I would. But finding out the facts, is a starting point and this is where the knowledge matters. Now I've put a map I think probably rather uh, innovatively in the junior school atlas about migration and refugees. I don't know of many school atlases that do that, I don't think I know of any. Um, and uh, so I put that in because 
that's a chance to engage with us in a dispassionate way. Geography provides the opportunity to engage with uh, some very controversial issues in a, in a, as it were, slightly to step back from them and to say, well, what is going on here and how can we understand it? So the countries where there are the most refugees in very, very big numbers are often, in fact, almost always the countries, the next door country. So the refugee that gets displaced from uh, Ethiopia will go to Sudan, for example. And the refugee that gets displaced in the Middle East will, from Syria will be in Jordan or Turkey. And the idea that, you know, sort of which you pick up coming back to the media and the public perception that we're being swamped by refugees. Europe generally is not actually absorbed. Uh, it's only absorbed a very small percentage of the 60 million or so refugees that there are in the world. Now that's a, you know, that's, that's a study that we can look at in, in, and it lowers the temperature. Uh, finding out what's going on and looking at it and then beginning to say, well, okay, so the borders matter, which countries are next to which country? If you don't, you know, that's opens up, uh, begins to open up a disinterested uh, study of uh, migration rather than a, a, a heated one, which starts from a position of, of, of uh, um, you know, sort of emotional tension, really. I might heat it up again, though, because I want to know why they've left the place that they've left. What sort of people were they? And then we find out that they're more similar to us than we ever thought. Absolutely. Not the sort of images that we see on uh, on Red Nose Day, but these are real people who laugh at the same sorts of things as we laugh at. And that starts to heat it up again, because then children are saying, why are we saying this sort of thing about these people? So you've stopped being dispassionate and you've, you've raised the, the game again because they're understanding that these are, are real people, but with real problems. And of course, a further issue there is there may be a, a significant, when you start talking about values and attitudes, there may be a big difference between what you say and do in the school to what happens the child finds happens at home. And so there may be a values conflict there as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think to say that this is easy would be... Um, thoroughly <laughs> misleading but I think that if we're going to be honest and actually uh, provide children and give children an education which will serve them well then we can't shy away from it mm. I think you've, you've answered perhaps my last question in part but I'm going to ask it anyway what are the future then what do you see as the future of geography one is helping students see themselves within the world and what the future might look like but what priorities are you working on what do you think is the key well i think offering off trying to offer a sort of magic bullet or formula would be would be unhelpful because anticipating the future and um, things um, geography is constantly evolving the story geography of the story of the world is precisely that we're telling the story which is a constantly an evolving story which is what's so exciting about it some branches of geography uh, become more important over time others seem to become you know sort of perhaps less fashionable or whatever so you know it's going to ebb and flow but understanding the world as it is in now and is, is going to and is liable to be in the future requires a spatial dimension you need to be able to uh, recognize flows you need to recognize where things are happening you need to recognize how they interact so that's going to be continue to be an area of, 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 of absolute uh, paramount importance and i think that if you think of 
the relationships that we have with the world around us and the way that the world around us impacts on us, that's going to remain the focus of geography in the coming years, I would suspect, without a doubt. So uh, geography is, in it, I think the answer probably, I'm getting there slowly, is that geography is going to stay as it always has been and do what it always has done, which is to shed a really penetrating and valuable and important light on, on what it is to live in the world. Oh, what a wonderful place, I think, to stop. <laughs> I can't add anything to that. It's, it's, Stephen, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. Is there anything that I've not said or not asked you about that, uh, that we've left off that you'd like well, to Well, I think in? it's hinted at all the way through, uh, but um, make geography fun, make it enjoyable. Uh, that's one of the things which I've held on to in a very big way in my teacher education career. Uh, if you're not enjoying it, uh, and the children are not enjoying it, then they're not going to learn very much. And they're not going to, uh, you know, it's, there's something here to treasure, something here. Um, and you as the teacher, and I don't want to up the ante, but we had a fascinating discussion amongst the trustees of the Geography Association when we had a, a, an away day uh, a couple of years ago. And we started by saying, what drew you into geography? And the answers around the room were about half the group, and there were 16 of us, said it was an individual. It was Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so who inspired me. Mm. And there's something to hold on to because you never know as a teacher what impact you have on the children around about you. You don't know, there is no magic key. You can't hand over a key and say, this is going to unlock uh, that particular child's understanding of the world that's going to fire them up for the rest of their lives. But every so often you do. And isn't that a wonderful thing to do? So as a teacher, as teachers, we have that opportunity and treasure it. And uh, it really is something to which I think makes the whole business of working through all those things which we have to do in teaching and education today makes it worthwhile. Mm. And despite, as I say, all the headwinds that we are experiencing, that idea that you can make a difference to children's lives and actually uh, uh, serve as a beacon that burns brightly for them do it. That's what I'd say. That's lovely. And, and <laughs> I'm still in touch with my geography teacher. I still remember the field trip to Whitby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and oh. there may have been people in that group who remember it for the totally different reasons because it was wet, horrible, and they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful place to stop. Thank you very much, Stephen. That's been really enjoyable. <laughs>